tossing and turning all night like a salad, it's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus. A probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker, and I thought, if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate, so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. I'm Jill, and this is the Sober Powered Podcast. I'll tell you how I finally stopped chasing the buzz and what I've learned along the way. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. I'm Jill, and if you're new here, I'm a sober scientist who talks about the science and psychology of addiction. If that sounds interesting, please subscribe. Today, I'm going to talk about addiction treatments throughout history. If you're wondering what snake pits, lobotomies, and gold injections have in common, then you'll enjoy this episode. I'm not covering any medical treatments, just treatments that were used before we began developing pharmaceuticals for addiction treatment. So let's dig in. 
Drinking alcohol has always been an acceptable thing to do, but getting drunk or having a problem with alcohol has always been heavily criticized. Catholic and Protestant religious leaders approved of drinking moderately, but considered getting drunk a sin. What most people don't realize is it's not really a choice. Unless you struggle with some form of addiction yourself, you really can't comprehend what it's like to not be able to control yourself. People who can drink normally are able to stop drinking when they choose to, even if they're drunk. So this lack of understanding is a big contributor to the stigma around having a problem with alcohol. In the 1800s, drunkenness was considered an indication that the person was capable of criminal or violent behaviors, another contributor to the stigma. Since addiction wasn't understood and people who struggled with their drinking were considered weak-willed potential criminals, the early treatments that were developed for addiction weren't that great. In ancient times, people considered to be alcoholics were thrown into snake pits with the idea being that the snakes would scare them out of their addiction. Alcoholics also had worms and other critters put in their alcohol, hoping to gross them out and make them want to stop drinking. Problem is, whenever a bug landed in my wine, I just fished it out and kept going. Can't waste any wine. Actual medical treatments for alcohol addiction began in the late 1800s. Dr. Leslie Keeley began Keeley Double Gold Cures in the 1870s and ended up opening more than 120 centers in North America and Europe. He believed that alcohol addiction resulted from damage to nerve cells from alcohol, which in turn weakened the victim's willpower. His treatment approach was to detoxify the patient's cells and return them to proper functioning. Then, I guess, we would have the willpower required to control ourselves. He provided tonics and injections, but a later analysis shows his cure did not contain any gold. His business partner said that the only patient who ever received a cure containing gold ended up dying, but they kept gold in the name for marketing purposes. Fanciness is pretty important, so I get it. In reality, it was about 28% alcohol, and his injections were made of insecticides and poisons. Patients receiving this treatment experienced many negative side effects such as fear, confusion, vomiting, and dizziness. His treatment program lasted a total of 31 days. Patients were put on a tapering schedule, given injections of the gold cure four times a day, and given a tonic every two hours. So they were actually getting a lot of alcohol during their treatment. Dr. Keeley claimed a 95% cure rate and said that those who did return to drinking did so of their own free will. Beyond his drastic treatments, he used support groups and group therapy as part of his treatment and believed that alcoholism was a disease, not a moral failing. So he did have some things right. However, he began to be criticized as violating medical ethics because he wouldn't tell anyone what his formula was. Other physicians called him a fraud, and one journalist found that his annual income was $1.4 million, which today would be about $380 million per year. 
After his death in 1900, his legacy began to decline. The FDA investigated in 1905 and discovered that his cure contained morphine, alcohol, cannabis, and cocaine. His institutes all shut down in 1966. Also in the late 1800s, in the 1880s, morphine was used as a cure for alcoholism. The idea was that alcoholism was incurable, so doctors should transfer the problem from alcohol to morphine, which they determined was less dangerous, less likely to promote the inappropriate behaviors exhibited by drunk people, and that morphine addiction was less likely to be passed down to future generations. So that's interesting because they knew that they were just trying to get them addicted to something else and get them off alcohol, but they thought that addiction was better than alcohol addiction. In the early 1900s, it was believed that alcoholism was passed down and it got worse with each generation. Because of this, politicians proposed laws that would forbid marriage and require people who were addicted to alcohol to be sterilized. By 1922, 15 states had passed eugenics laws, and the states that didn't have laws pressured institutionalized alcoholics, especially women, to become sterilized. Lobotomies were developed in 1936, and this was used as a last resort method to cure addiction. By 1960, 100,000 prefrontal lobotomies had been performed in the U.S., Patients targeted for this procedure included those judged to be alcoholics, drug addicts, sexual deviants, and people with excessive eating habits. A lobotomy involves inserting a stylus through one of the eye sockets and severing the nerves between the thalamus and the prefrontal and frontal lobes of the brain. And remember, the prefrontal cortex is super important. The idea was to induce significant changes in personality and thinking, but it resulted in leaving patients apathetic and childlike. The treatment did not cure addiction, and according to one resource, a patient went right to the bar after his lobotomy, and when doctors finally found him, he was drunk. Lobotomies were used because at the time, mental institutions were overcrowded and chaotic. By giving patients lobotomies, they were able to keep them calm and maintain control over the institution. In 1950, antipsychotics and antidepressants were developed, which were much more effective, so lobotomies started to become much less common. Also in the 1950s, researchers in Canada, led by a scientist named Osmond, began experimenting with LSD as a treatment for alcoholics. The idea was, if a biochemical treatment would work, then alcoholism was a disease, not a moral failing. Osman was a psychiatrist who was researching schizophrenia. His research led him to believe that schizophrenia resulted from a biochemical imbalance. Initial LSD experiments demonstrated the drug's ability to bring individuals to new levels of self-awareness. Following an LSD experience, some of the participants felt that they had gained a new perspective on their role in community, family, or society in general. 
Osmond wanted to know whether this type of change would have an effect on modifying an individual's behavior or habits. So that's what led him to start working with alcoholics. The rationale behind this method was that he believed the effects of LSD simulated delirium tremens, which he thought would represent a person's rock bottom. The assumption was that simulating DT would help an alcoholic stay sober. So remember, delirium tremens is a very severe form of alcohol withdrawal, and it can be fatal. In 1955, psychiatrist Colin Smith conducted another LSD study involving 24 alcoholics. Patients in this study had been diagnosed with chronic alcoholism and had agreed to a two to four week stay at the hospital. During the first part of their stay, Smith encouraged them to talk about their drinking while he explained the objectives of the trial. Patients were strongly advised to join AA after their stay ended. The final report from Smith's study stated that none of the patients had become worse. While 12 patients continued drinking, six were stated to have improved and the other six patients were able to maintain some sobriety. A minority of patients were said to have a negative, somewhat scary experience with the drug. Despite having good results in their experiments, they were unable to demonstrate these results in controlled trials. Other researchers showed no effect in controlled trials. The reason that a controlled trial is so important is because it shows whether LSD is providing the benefit or if it's just the stay in rehab, group therapy, and AA meetings afterwards. A 1962 study argued that LSD produced fear and anxiety, which scared patients into sobriety, and the researchers did not support the biochemical ideas that Osmond had. So when you conduct a study, you want to change one thing and then measure the effect that that change has. But in this case, they brought these patients into rehab, they had them in group therapy, and they were in a very controlled environment. And then towards the end of their stay, they were given LSD. So there are so many variables here. So it's hard to tell whether LSD had any impact. And then in the 1960s, LSD began to become popular as a street drug. So support for this research was lost. The FDA has approved three drugs for the treatment of alcohol use disorder, Antibuse, Naltrexone, and Acamprosate. Antibuse was the first FDA-approved drug for the treatment of alcohol abuse in 1951. So Antibuse is a drug that messes with how your body processes alcohol, and it allows a buildup of the very toxic intermediate called acetaldehyde to accumulate in your body, and this is what makes you feel very sick. So this is one reason that some people can't drink, specifically people of East Asian descent, and it kind of simulates that, so every time you drink, you feel terrible. Naltrexone doesn't make you feel sick while you drink and you can drink with it. What it does is it binds to opioid receptors in the brain, preventing endorphins from binding and stimulating the release of dopamine. So what that means is you can drink all you want, but you can't get the pleasure feeling from it. So you get no dopamine release while you drink. And the last drug, acamprosate or camprol, it's not exactly sure 
how this one works. So the mechanism of action is not well understood, but the idea is that it reduces the symptoms of alcohol withdrawal by messing with the glutamate and GABA systems in our brain. So the idea is if your withdrawal symptoms are less severe, then the desire to drink will be less as well. So a lot of things that drive people to drink are massive anxiety when they first stop drinking. So this might relieve it. It might also help with cravings. So I hope this information was interesting to you. I thought that I would do a fun episode this week because I have been reading a little bit more about the history of alcohol and why it is so important culturally. And I thought it was cool how they threw people that they decided were alcoholics into snake pits and they gave them lobotomies and injected very poisonous things into their bodies. And and it took a really long time for good treatments to be developed. And just because there are good medications out there doesn't mean that's the only way. AA, therapy, different types of meetings, they're all very effective. So there are a lot of options now for someone to recover instead of transferring the addiction to morphine or being institutionalized or going through any of these probably pretty traumatic treatments. So thanks for listening. Please remember to share this episode if you enjoyed it, and I will talk to you next week. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.